This is Rebecca Lowe, or Rebecca Lua, if you listen to Suboptimal Radio, and you are listening to Men in Blazers on the NBC Sports Network. It's unbelievable! Welcome to a Men in Blazers pod special. A special MLS pod special. And not just because we stopped for cheesesteaks in South Philly on the way home. That's right. Earlier this week, producers JW, Lexi, Evan and I travelled to the great city of Philadelphia to talk to Ali Bedoya, a man currently grappling with a union side in transition and in search of their first win. This conversation was actually recorded in the union locker room at their training facility by their ping pong table in Chester, PA. So if you hear someone showering in the background, worry not. It's just Chris Pontius. Here it is, direct from the same city where the Continental Congress first met in 1774 to get rid of Davo's ancestors and begin to dream of MLS glory. I'm sitting here with a staple of the United States men's national team, a gent whose story starts across the Delaware in the great state of New Jersey, a man who threw caution to the wind and traversed the Atlantic to test his limits in the trenches of European football. We're talking Sweden, Scotland, oh, and France. But last season, he returned to these shores in hopes of following in the footsteps of Randall Cunningham. Alan Iverson and Lenny Dykstra to bring glory to this quite wonderful city. We welcome to the pod a man who is as forthright off the field as he is hard charging on it. 59 US caps, your captain of the Philadelphia Union, the one and only Mr. Alejandro Bedoya. Uh, thanks for having me. I wish I had a, a great opening statement like that, but I don't have that in me. <laughs> I cannot be more excited to speak to you today because I find your career story absolutely fascinating. You're born in Englewood, New Jersey, hometown of Sarah Jessica Parker. <laughs> I believe you're an Arsenal, Barcelona, Palmer supporter as a kid. You played youth soccer with the mighty Clifton Stallions, with Giuseppe Rossi, future pros Dan Satella and Jonathan Barajo. What I want to know is, you grew up dreaming of what exactly? What did you think was possible for yourself when you were a kid? It was on TV. I was on the radio I, all day, you know, in the household every weekend. But I never really actually dreamed that I would become a professional footballer. You know, my, my family came over from Colombia for obviously bigger aspirations, bigger dreams. Education was always key. So I always, first and foremost, was my mom was always stressing that, you know, get my degree, be good in school, and, and the rest will take care of itself. I didn't really think about becoming a footballer or a soccer player, professional soccer player, until I got to college, really. I always dreamed that I would become, just like my father, a successful businessman, you know, somebody that worked hard and, and, and got to where he, a, a great position in his own business and, and was well-respected by his peers. So as a kid... You were focused on the American dream, less a footballing dream. Correct, But yes. at, at the same time, footballing blood, it flows in your veins. I mean, your grandfather was a goalkeeper. Your father followed in his footsteps as a player, both men professionals in the Colombian League. Did their stories fuel your imagination as a kid? Yeah, it, it definitely did. Uh, my grandfather... 
my grandparents lived with us actually in our home that we had a, a guest room and, and that's where they lived. That um, is the greatest. Yeah, yeah. So uh, with my grandfather and his portable radio, uh, always carrying it with him everywhere in every part of the house that he was going. And we had like this little black box, as you call it, cable box. I don't know. It was illegal, I guess. But <laughs> we were able to get all these games from the Italy and Spain and, and especially South America. We watched a lot of Argentine soccer. Whenever I had a chance to go to the park, if my father was still at work, my grandfather had time, so I would be with him. And he he was a goalie, so he was always, you know, make sure whatever it was, whether it was between two trees or two cones or two pairs of shoes, he would stand in there and, and have me and my brother kicking balls at him. One of our homes that we lived growing up was next to the park. And at that park, we we built our own little soccer, like little mini field, put up um, three planks of wood and built our little goal. And But it actually faced our living room. Uh, at our home and so if you hit it over the goal uh and over the bushes <laughs> it, it, it hit our our home and there was one time where I hit the ball I guess pretty hard I was maybe nine ten years old and I just smashed it and smashed right through the living room the windows the glass shattered it and my father was like that's a good boy that's what I want from you because I want you to learn I don't care where you hit it I want you to be a finisher if it hits the lights good attempt hit the next shot just as hard oh, i love your father i do so, i think he saw in the future he saw that goal that you yeah. scored against psg he <laughs> glimpsed it right then and there but it was really college where you started to think about a putative career in the professional games what i'm amazed by your story is that you had the the confidence you had the tenacity to set off to make your european dreams come true i mean at age 21 you head off to sweden Signing for Orebru. How do I say that? Yeah, I don't even know how to pronounce it, but it's something like Urebro. However <laughs> <laughs> you pronounce it, it's two and a half hours west of Stockholm. A solid Swedish club, average attendance 7,000 and change. You've talked about the culture shock you experienced jumping into the deep end of the professional game there. Uh, I read you once said that you learned more in Sweden about tactics in the first few games than you ever had before. Can you describe that tactical gap that you engage with there after, the co after a successful college career? They really go in depth in videos. They study the game a lot, I feel like, and different formations. So when I first got to Orobro, we played in a 4-3-3. And we literally could watch film for definitely over an hour, you know, hour and a half, sometimes even two hours. It would last like pretty much like a normal training session. They're just so detail-oriented in terms of, you know, movements off the ball, with the ball. You'll watch your games over and watch the opponents, and then you'll see uh, how they move, how, how you have moved in the previous game, how to press properly as a team, and individually where you should be each, each position, you know. So it's very, very detail-oriented. And, and I'm coming from a game in college, you know. I'm 21 years old, you know. In Europe, the 21 years old. You and you're the shit. <laughs> I am, yeah. At college, you At college, I was the man. Scoring goals, doing well, ACC Player of the Year. And then you go to Sweden where, where you're playing at 21, you're becoming a pro where other guys have been pro since they were 16 years old, 17 years old. So I'm older than some of these guys uh, that have been pros. I had a lot more to learn than they did, you know. And, and that's why I, I think going to Sweden was actually the right move for me, even though it's the road less traveled. But I think it did me very well. College was great for you. Sweden, in many ways, sounds like your master's or your PhD <laughs> in football, but it's not a glamorous life. I mean, a local newspaper interview you did with a New Jersey paper, you, you talked about being holed up in the darkness and the snow uh, through the winter until it was time to train. I've spoken to Michael Bradley about his time as a youth in the Dutch backwaters of Herenfeen. 
it can be pretty depressing. And I mean, we think about football, you think about playing for Arsenal, you think about playing for Barcelona, but the first steps of that grind. I mean, life in Sweden, incredibly challenging off the field, I can only imagine. Uh, yeah, exactly. You think of going to Europe as a professional soccer player and it's this gra glamorous life. You're playing against the big boys or you're on a team, you know, the uh, top four club in, in, in England or whatever, Germany or France, the, these big countries. But there's all these other little European countries that, that play good soccer. January was when I first went over to, to Sweden for preseason. And, uh, well, there's a reason why most of their preseason camps are either in Spain or <laughs> in, in, uh, in nice warm areas. You know, I, I know a lot of Swedish teams have come over here, you know, uh, and, and to Florida, to California, you know, to have some nice weather. Long, long, um, dark days. Winter in Sweden is about, I think you get like four hours of light maybe. So uh, I come to England, mate. That's, that's a lot. <laughs> oh, I mean, I lived in Glasgow. So yeah, it's rainy there. But no, it's uh, in the morning you're training and it's dark. Uh, you get out of training and it's already dark at two in the afternoon. So we're well, not in Florida. Not at all. Anymore, so, Ali. Yeah. But at the outset, are you very much the American? How do they receive it? Until, <laughs> until you score your first goal, are they looking at you like, who is this guy? Well, every country was like Miami what? You know? Yeah, I had a different experience in every country being an American, you know, with the stereotype. In Sweden, I mean, they're they're very embracing, uh, very nice people, and they speak English fluently. You know, even though they have their own language, you know, Swedish, um, everybody speaks English very fluently. So that was a that made the move a lot easier, and they love American TV, American movies. So you know, the first couple months, it was just always talking about, you know, is is America is college really like American Pie? Is it like old school? You know, and I try to say, yeah, but you know, movies tend to exaggerate a bit. But yeah, it is it is a very fun life. Will Ferrell is uh, one of the great cultural ambassadors to the rest of the world. Oh, he is, and he, his wife is Swedish too. So I know he's got a place in Sweden. So he understands. He knows he gets Swedish life. But uh, but on the football field. Yeah, on the football field, they were very receiving. I think everywhere I've been to in Europe, I, they've embraced kind of like that American mentality that I've kind of shown. And, and I think what I mean by that is my, my work ethic, you know, I'm a two-way player, box to box. And I think they, they see that the American passion, the mentality, like the never give up attitude, you know, I think they've always embraced that everywhere I've gone. You made your debut right before your 22nd birthday. Standard for American players coming out of college. As you said, incredibly old by European debutante standards. With hindsight, when you think about your career, do you wish you hadn't gone to college and instead headed over to Europe at age kind of 15, Christian Pulisic style? I hesitate to say I wish I would have had this because I have no regrets really. But I feel when now at the stage that I am in my career, you kind of think about what could have been, what could have happened. I could have maybe made the leap to maybe even a bigger club. I know right out of college, after my freshman year, uh, Sporting Lisbon showed interest, but that's a big club. I could have gone there, but you know, my mother obviously stressed education was key, so I, I went on and finished and getting my degree in three, three years at BC. So do I wish maybe I would have started my development in Europe like maybe a Pulisic did and, and gone able to play with professional guys who were professional and then being in that environment? Yes, yeah, sure, maybe. But at the other side of it, I, I was able to get my education and, and I had a great time in college, uh, university life. I learned a lot and here I am, you know, outside of the football, you know, I'm, I'm still a business minded person and, uh, you know, I have other interests as well. And, and so I feel like that's made me a more well-rounded person. You're one of the few footballers I've met who has real estate concerns and a thinker 
to table coffee business. There's not many of those around. We'll save that conversation for my other podcast, Coffee Drinking Today. But on the field, you bounce around Europe. You're headed to Scottish Giant Rangers, where you joined fellow American, fellow Philadelphia Union uh, player Maurice Adu. That club went into administration. It was all Maurice's fault. <laughs> you charged back to Sweden with Helsingborg. What's it feel like being an infantryman in European football's leagues? Do you, do you have a long-term plan? Or are you like a pine squirrel leaping from tree to tree? I mean, what, what does a ladder look like for you and your agent? Are you thinking, Premier League, how do I get there? Or are you watching Breck Shea and Eddie Johnson get wiped out and thinking slowly, slowly? Your dream is to play at the highest level possible. Some will say right now the Premier League is, is the best league in the world. That's uh, maybe debatable, obviously. but Rebecca Lowe would say that. <laughs> <laughs> I would have loved to play in, in that league, of course. But at the same time, it's for me, it was always about the long term. When I left Orobro to go to Rangers, there were other, obviously other clubs and other leagues interested. But I saw the possibility of being able to team up with a fellow American teammate that would make maybe the transition better. But at the same time, Rangers, it's not just a club, it's an institution. For me, I saw that as a great opportunity. The fan base is amazing. And Glasgow is a cool city, uh, great Fantastic. vibes, yeah. Even though I don't understand their English at all times, it was still a very, very fun time. Uh, and then going over after they went into administration and Everybody had to redo their contracts. I was thinking about what, what should I do? Do I go to a move to a club where it's maybe in a bigger league and I fight for playing time and maybe I won't even get that, you know, because mm -hmm. I wasn't uh, playing as much as I would have liked at Rangers? Or do I think long term and say, you know, listen, um, I just playing is the most crucial. And if I play, I'll show the scouts what I'm capable of and make a move again like I did from Morbo to Rangers and that's exactly how I, I thought it out in my head. How often are you speaking to your agent though Ali? I mean as your focus is obviously on your team and what you're doing game to game but as part of you watching other European footballing tables like a trader watching the market seeing who's buying who's selling where you could be a good fit up the ladder. Yeah, kind of. Actually, it's how, how you think about it. Within any, any investment, like what do you, something may be doing well, very well, but, you know, maybe it's not the best buy at that point. Something could be, could have just lost a, a lot, but they have this potential that maybe somebody else doesn't see in it. And I kind of looked at it like that, you know, my agent, we talked uh, during that time at Rangers, we talked every day about what's going on, you know, which teams have you talked to, where should I go, what's the best move? And for me, uh, Helsingborg was at the top of the table. It was a league that I already knew, that everybody knew me. And I knew that they would have the chance to play in Champions League in, in European football. So for me, that was like the diamond in the rough type team that I, I could be a part of, that I knew I could definitely play and play a part and, and do well and showcase my ability to move on. 2013, you had showcased your skills and then some. You ended up a newly promoted league and outfit, Nantes, Lake Canary. The capital of the Western Loire, beautiful, beautiful place, once home to Dimitri Payet. You thrive <laughs> there. You struck the mother of all bombs against PSG. You become a fixture in Jurgen Klinsmann's US team. I'm fascinated though. I mean, to go next level in your position, you're not a showreel kind of player. You're not a dribbler. You're not a dominator. What you do is subtle. I mean, you're very much a team player, a remarkable team player. But is it frustrating to try and be noticed and go next level doing what you do and what you bring to the team? Yeah, I mean, I mean that's kind of the story of my career, you know. I've always been the, 
a versatile midfielder. I'm not the guy that you're going to hop on the FIFA sticks and, and start doing R3 moves with it. <laughs> uh, I'm not the flashiest guys, but but I like to think of myself, if you're going to have names for players, you know, a playmaker or a winger, I, I like to think of myself as a facilitator, maybe, you know, the glue, somebody, a player that's, you know, like you said, a team player who, when I get out there uh, and, and cross those white lines, I'm going to go to battle and I'm going to work both sides of the ball. I know I have enough ability in me to, to do get things done offensive side on the offensive side of things, but also the tenacity and aggressiveness and intensity to get it done on defensive side of the ball. It's maybe not the most flashiest of things, but I think I'd like to, I, I do the simple things right. And sometimes in soccer, the simple things are very complex. That's a nickname that I think will be better in French, Le Facilitator. Le Facilitator. <laughs> <laughs> but knowing that you do do that, and that's what, you bring to a team, but it's not something that is always truly appreciated, apart from by the diehards. How is it to experience like the Julian Greens and the Gedeon Zellalems, the 18, 19 year olds who are kind of hailed as our quick fix heroes when you're in, you're, you're in the grind as a player yourself? Are you but like, as a player myself, it doesn't on. affect me. Do we, do we not remember Freddie Adu? Yeah, yeah. I mean, for me, I just, I, when you read stuff or you hear things as a player, you're just like, <laughs> well, wait a minute, this guy's got to come into training and, and show what he's worth to us. And as a player, you're always competitive, right? If you see a guy coming in for your spot, I mean, yeah, maybe he might be your teammate, but I'm getting stuck in and training and showing what I'm all about. He's got to earn his spot, right? I want to talk now about your decision to move back to America. It's one that so many U.S. players have made from within the European grind. You're 29. You have a newborn son. You've got options out of nonce. Can you talk us through the decision points that go through your mind and how you process the options? They are very tough decisions and decisions that I talked about with my family for, for hours on the phone, FaceTiming. Of course, I did have some options out of Nantes. MLS did show interest for the past couple of years, but you know I always still was ambitious and wanted to stay in Europe. But this time around, it was a little bit different. It was different in the sense that my son was a had been born already. My family didn't get over too often as, as much as they'd like to watch games, you know, and watching the French League, it was always sometimes tough because they weren't always on TV. At this point, I was already contemplating really coming home. You, you know? were, I mean, you did have options. There were English options. There, there were, were European English options. options. There were Bundesliga options, yes. So uh, how do you go through, talk us through how you go the, through that decision, how you make that decision. <laughs> you're someone who is, since you're in New Jersey, you had a European dream. You placed yourself in that grind to secure that dream. How do you just say, you know, enough, I'm going back when I do have those other options? Can it just, just talk through those decision points. Because at the end of the day, Americans, they do love America. There's no other footballing nation I've seen other than America where they, they do dream not for footballing reasons, but they just love coming home to this country. It's the three-ply toilet paper. <laughs> <laughs> Us Americans, I feel like that we just feel this special bond, you know, of being home. Home is so different from the rest of the world, even though I love Europe and I miss it. But uh, there was something special about me coming home, having my friends and family and being able to come to games to see me on TV. And for my son, is just being around his grandparents. I mean, my, gran my, my father and mother, um, they didn't get over as often as I'd like them to. And for them to be around him a lot more is, is special. I mean, people don't think about that aspect of it, you know. Us footballers can seem as robots sometimes. And 
that maybe will challenge us and say, I'm not as ambitious anymore or whatever it is, but it's a lot more than that, you know, and I wanted to be close to family, see how I was, I knew I was raised around all my family a lot, and I want that special feeling for my son Santino as well. Your touch point with America had been the U.S. team. Jurgen Klinsmann, a big believer in you and your career and what you'd done, pushing yourself through the grind. You'd started three of the four games at the 2014 World Cup. Jurgen's tenure was controversial. He had a ton of external critics, all of them outside the locker room with no real understanding of what life was like inside that locker room. How on the money was the read externally from what you experienced as a player inside the locker room? His tenures is always going to be debated, I think, by a lot of people, whether he was a good coach, whether it was a good time, you know, for the national team. I thought there was a lot of schadenfreude, you know, surrounding his time there, especially when he got ousted. But for everything that bad that happened, maybe not winning the Gold Cup, not going on to Confederations Cup, uh, there's a lot of things to be respected for what he did. But I think he definitely raised the awareness of the American soccer team globally having him as the coach. He also expanded the player pool greatly, I think, by getting players that maybe wouldn't have played for U.S. otherwise. Whether you agree with that type of method or not, that's another conversation. But I definitely think he brought in some, some players that you know, were able to show their abilities and, and be part of the team. And he got some good results, some decent results, maybe not in the best of competitions or whatever, but uh, I think you know, we did well in the Copa America. The team got some good results against some quality teams. But like with every coach, some of it is going to be results-based. And when you don't get results, especially the type of results we got in the last two games of qualifying, things change. <laughs> I mean, you lived a career doing what Jurgen preached, pushing yourself to the next level. Bruce Arena is now back. I believe he threatened to cut off your man bun. <laughs> Yes, you've got so very sarcastically. You've got a new manager. How do you experience that? The need to prove yourself all over again. Yeah, that's something that goes on in, in everybody's career. Even if you're not in the soccer world, you get a new boss. And you have to still prove yourself at work. For me, uh, Jurgen always preached, you know, get out of your comfort zone. And, and I think players like myself are what he was talking about, to make the most out of your opportunities. And now we have a new coach in Bruce Arena, somebody who's been here before, who's very familiar with the national team, with the American player, with the American mentality, which I think was one of the major differences between Jurgen and Bruce, actually. It's all about embracing the, those challenges and, and competing again, like I mentioned before. Do you do so exhaustedly? Do you do so excitedly to do so oh really don't have to do this again Lee I mean really what is the adjective that uses you have to kind of you you'd won one guy's trust Jurgen massive believer in what you brought to a team it actually worked out pretty well I mean, in terms of the transition it was a couple of months in between so guys could take a deep breath guys had time to you know think about their own situation and well, when you lose it's a coach's fault right and and uh, but at the same time, we players have to take uh, some responsibility for those losses, too. We're going into January camp, it was like a breath of fresh air with Bruce in the house. Uh, everybody was ready to compete and show their, th show their worth. There were some new faces, new players, some guys that didn't really get that opportunity under Jurgen that had some, some fire under their skin. Dax. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so uh, it, you just take it in stride. You arrive in Philadelphia. <laughs> Ernie Stewart's union. So when you finish that first game in MLS, what are your thoughts when you go home? You're like, oh, God, that was physical. Or you're like, wow, I've got more time on the ball. Or have you got 
less time on the ball than you imagined. What are you thinking going into your next training session? It is a very physical and athletic league, but my first start was against New England Revolution in, in Boston. Or not really in Boston, but... Approximately uh, in the vicinity of <laughs> in Boston. Vicinity. Boston-ish. <laughs> and we ended up winning 4-0. And I'm thinking myself in that game, uh, you know, playing the number eight role, the role that I was bought for. And I was like, wow, this is, it's not so bad. It's kind of easy. I had a lot of time on the ball, a lot of space. So it wasn't that bad. And, and bear in mind that I had just come over from France uh, with only a week of preseason. So I was still not even nearly fully fit. But I, I was like, okay, yeah, uh, you can definitely see the difference in quality, or the difference of pace. But I guess at that time it was against New England, who maybe wasn't the most informed team and then when you started playing you know the better teams at Toronto's the New York Red Bulls you know and the, these guys then you knew it was the intensity was there you know these guys are very athletic very physical this was a challenge in itself too coming back to MLS coming back to America my whole professional career I spent in Europe so coming over here to a very different league very different travel schedule in MLS so it is grueling it's very grueling on the body. I'm sure you hear from the, the guys coming over from England, European guys. I mean, the big, longest trip we will have is an hour flight. And coming here, you have a full day trip going out to Vancouver, out to the West Coast. It takes a toll on your body, mentally and physically. I mean, your union team, they raised hopes in the off-season. Flurry of trade activity. Opening drag. Little dark. Going back to last season. Winless in 15 games. Oof. Have you experienced a run like this in your professional life before, Alec? No, I, I have not, actually. We do feel the kind of the weight on our shoulders, the, the pressure, you know, the, the hopelessness kind of a little bit, or the hopefulness to finally get that win, finally get a shutout. For me, at least, that's something that I've been vocal about. Our team, we, we need to get a shutout. It's tough because I came here, uh, they, they got Ernie here, uh, so it's a club that's now being ambitious, you know. Uh, I feel like following MLS from afar, Philly Union has always been the team that kind of hasn't been well respected within the league. So that's what drove me to come, come here, me being the guy that always likes challenges, the, the ambitious guy, I wanted to put Philly on the map. And Ernie's here too, and he brings a lot of experience and wealth of knowledge with him. And... And the fans deserve better. This club deserves better. And us players here, we deserve better. We know what kind of team we have, what kind of players, the personalities we have, the talent that there is here. But it's not easy. Uh, and I'm hopeful that, you know, with the parity in the league, we've seen teams struggle in the beginning and end of season have a good season, you know, by getting into playoffs. Or last year, Red Bulls were competing for the Supporters' Shield in the end. And then Seattle went through a skid and ended up being MLS Cup. The Seattle way. Please God, is what will occur here in Philadelphia. But there's the gent who did play in Europe who returns on a DP contract. Do you feel things more? Do you feel there's more on your shoulders here? Certainly, because you are a DP, you are you know, rightfully or wrongfully so. You, there is more weight on your shoulders. There's more pressure to perform from the outside. In the first few games I was playing, you know, I was behind a striker, which I did at times in, in Nantes in France. And I feel like maybe the average fan uh, sees a DP and sees the money that a DP is on and they're automatically going to assume that guy is supposed to be scoring the goals and helping the team win. But that's my goal. My, my, my job is to help the team win. But like love, I said, I'm you, the glue you, of you, the team. You love facilitating. Yeah, I am. But that doesn't always come with huge stats. Everywhere in the world it happens. You see Pog Pogba at Man United getting heavily criticized maybe at times. You're and doing better than him, Ali. <laughs> <laughs> there You're you doing go. better than him. Don't, but, put, but, don't put yourself he, in that category. He didn't do this you know, himself. It's not his fault that 
Man United decided to pay a record fee for him and what the market value dictates. Yeah, you are shuffling two positions. You played at 10, you played at 8, you played at 6. What is the position that you, when you think of yourself, that you think of? When I think of myself, I see myself as like the number eight. Uh, I see myself as the guy who is kind of a, a shuttler, like I said, the glue. A guy that's going to get up and down, that's going to be the link between the defense to, and the offense. The guy who's going to get on the ball and be able to dictate some tempo, but also be the guy that's going to be able to break up plays or, or close down the passing lanes. That's going to help recover the ball for the team and, and, and start counterattacks or start the play. So the number eight, I think, gives me the best chance of making an impact on a team. Question from a listener, GFOP at Football Barbecue. Ali, what's your leadership style as a captain of a team that's currently struggling? Are you strong and quiet? (laughs) This guy obviously doesn't know you. Or verbal? (laughs) I'm willing to call guys Uh, out. I'll say anyone who watched you this weekend will know that you use the kind of language that can only be used on HBO. (laughs) Once you're in a game, uh, there are definitely some obscenities that are yelled. <laughs> it's part of it. You go to battle. But for me, on the field, I, I can be vocal, but I'm not going to be the guy that on the field is going to really out you or, or that you're going to really see me verbally abusing somebody or something. That's not my style at all. I think I'd like to be the guy that leads by example. And by that, what I mean is maybe you saw something like that this past weekend against Montreal. You know, the When you fret the French, minutes. you learn a nonce. Yeah, yeah, the French. Oh, wow. Yeah, I was saying some things to Simon and Bernier and stuff. <laughs> but no, nah, just showing my intensity, being aggressive and, and not being afraid of getting stuck in. And I think uh, towards the end of the game, you saw me battling, you know, with Piatti, with uh, the winger that Montreal had and winning balls back from my team and winning tackles. And, and I feel like if my teammates could see what I'm doing and the energy I'm putting in, even though I'm about to cramp up, they can feed off of that and, and give them that extra energy. It didn't help us this weekend, but uh, that's kind of how I lead by. And then I wear my emotions on my sleeve. Players will tell you, my teammates will tell you that when we lose, I hate losing. And I think that's what really makes me a, comp- a real competitor. I think how real it stay with guys. It? How, long will, how long will a draw, a draw like this weekend that you said was like a loss? How long will that sit with you? Well, my PR guy will let you know that he, before I went out to the press conference, he, I had to take 10 minutes to myself in the locker room to just calm down a bit. The first couple of minutes in there. It could have been a broken trash can or a broken water bottle or two. But, but then you go home. And then I go home. And and does it sit with you? Or are you a pro who's played so many bloody games now? Going back to the Clifton Stallions, you played in Sweden, you played in France, you played in Scotland, you've now played back in MLS, you played in the international realm, you win some, you lose some. Fans, the loss stays with for weeks. I mean, I'm permanently depressed as an Everton <laughs> fan. It's now just a, just a way of life. How long does a draw that felt like a loss sit with you as a player? This weekend, something like that, when you're up 3-0 and come back to 3-3, that, that stayed with me for a while. Uh, all I did when I got home, I have this little, my basement is like my man cave. <laughs> I just went down there, turned TV and, and just sit by myself down there. Uh, the NBA playoffs are on, so at least I get to watch some, some fun NBA because I do love the NBA. I won't think about the game. I'm just thinking about the NBA and, and just seeing these guys compete and, and take my mind off of the game. So as just by in, myself. As they say in the NBA, me. trust the process. Trust the process. Oh, um, last question. <laughs> Your career art, it is fascinating. I mean, embedded within it, so many nuanced issues about American soccer and facing American soccer players and how they're viewed in Europe. If you were to be able to give a piece of advice to a young American player 
with dreams of breaking through as a pro. Think of the advice you'd give to yourself, age 16, if you met young Ali now. What single piece of advice would you give them? For me, soccer is just like life. You have to be passionate about the things that you do. Whatever you decide to do, whether it's you really want to go with trying to become a professional soccer player or, or something else in life, make sure you're passionate about it. Because when you're passionate about something, you're really focused on getting something done and you're going to do everything you can to do it. And once you are able to do it, it doesn't feel like work. It's fun. It'll make you happy. Even though there'll be some frustrating times, you'll get over those humps and life will be a lot better the next day. And these words from a man who has survived dark nights in Sweden, financial meltdown in Scotland, <laughs> and the beginning uh, of a career here in MLS, which we do wish as American fans and fans of the US men's national team will go from strength to strength. Those are truly words to live by. Ali, thank you. We love Ernie Stewart. We love <laughs> Philadelphia. The Union fans, they really do deserve to sample glory. And we wish you and your club Godspeed.